0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Beyond the Cover. I'm your host, John Robb, of course, with my co-host, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing?
2: Doing great. How you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty good. I want to let everybody know that if you hear a dog barking or a kid screaming in the background, that's because I'm in my office, but I have the window open because it's nice and cool outside, finally. And I want to get some cool air. I don't want to send an air conditioning. So the window's open, and they might, you might hear them. And if you do, you do. If you don't, oh, well, just know that there's kids and dogs outside my house. <laughs> Thanks for that info. Now, today we have a very special guest. Her name is Gabriella Pereira. Now, uh, I'll let you do the quick little rundown on Gabriella because you met her at Thriller Fest. So, Jeff, what do you, what, who, who exactly is Gabriela, and what are we going to talk about tonight?
2: Well, we are going to talk about the art of writing. And when we were discussing uh, earlier, John, who we wanted to have on the show, I said we've got to have Gabriella on because – not only is she a great writer and teacher, she uh, runs this site called DIY MFA, and she has a new book out with that same title from Writer's Digest. So, Gabriella,
1: are you there? No, but she's going to be on right now. Oh. There she is, Gabriella. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing?
3: <laughs> I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Hey,
1: no Thanks problem. For I didn't know this. Jeff was going to do that real quick, so it kind of confused me. <laughs> we try
3: <laughs> no problem
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not very hard to confuse me i mean right now i'm looking at a donald duck and i'm just like staring at him wondering what he's thinking right now so yeah, well don't worry
3: i i think i'll win the prize in being confused because i'm on the east coast so for me it's way past my bedtime oh. so i'll be easily confused
1: <laughs> that's right 10 yeah, 30 out there <laughs> yeah but you know what we'll make it worth your while and hopefully we'll keep you awake um So let's just jump right into it real quick and go ahead and give a little rundown of your book. And it's, again, it's DIY MFA, but then it's kind of subtitled as write with focus, read with purpose and build your community. So tell us a little bit about what you got going on there.
3: Well, I think maybe the best way to tell you about and your listeners about DIY MFA is to kind of tell the story behind the story, right? So back in 2010, I was in an MFA program. MFA is, master, as you know, is Master of Fine Arts. And I was studying at the new school. I'd had this wonderful experience. It studied with some of the great, great writers um People like David Levithan, Hetty Jones, Sarah Weeks, uh, Tor Seidler, like all these great people in children's literature. That was what I was focusing on. And I distinctly remember sitting in graduation, and I had this wave of sadness that came over me. And at first I was like, wait, what's this about? You know, I was sort of shocked by this feeling because I figured, you know, graduation is supposed to be happy. And I realized the reason I was feeling this wave of sadness was because while I'd had a really good experience, I knew that there were a lot of people out there who wanted to get MFAs and couldn't. And the reason I knew this is because I applied to many, many, many programs, but because I wanted to write something that was so niche, children's books, I only got into one program and that's the one I ended up going to and graduating from and had this great experience at. So I realized that there are a lot of writers out there who were probably like me, had were hungry to learn more skills and to improve their craft but didn't really have anywhere to go because a lot of the MFA programs out there for better or for worse do tend to cater to the more traditional literary kind of system so I was sitting in graduation this like it's almost like this uh light bulb moment for me. And then I went home and I had at the time I had this teeny tiny little blog where I, you know, wrote about my writing journey and all that stuff. And I went home, I had literally 12 followers, one of whom was my mother. So I don't think she really counts because she's supposed to like read and love everything I write. And anyway, I went home (laughs) and I started blogging about this concept. And Out of nowhere, people started emailing me and commenting. And so I knew right away I had struck a nerve with this idea of, you know, when I started blogging, I was like, if you could DIY or do it yourself with an MFA program, would you do it? And people started responding. So – that summer, since I didn't have a job lined up immediately for after graduation, I kind of figured I'd finish my thesis and shop it around query it for a little little while. I decided to tinker with this concept. So I started blogging about it. I spent an entire month, the month of September in 2010, where I only blogged about this one idea for every single day that month. It was sort of a litmus test for me to see if I had enough to say on the topic, and apparently I did because it's now what 6 years later and I'm Still talking about it but basically that's where it came from was this sort of recognizing this need that there were a lot of writers out there who weren't being served by the current system as it were and so I founded this program when it started it was very much like a scrappy startup like I didn't really know it was even a business for a while I thought it was just kind of this idea and now it's you know now it's become a a business, it's become a book. Uh, we teach courses and I have students and it's kind of kind of awesome. But um but yeah, so that's that's really what DIY MFA is and what it's about. It started and always has been an alternative that to help writers kind of do it themselves. And where the subtitle came in, you mentioned the write, read and community, build community those are sort of like the three pillars of DIY MFA. So basically, if you're gonna, I sat down as I was trying to dissect what this concept could mean. And I realized that every single MFA program out there has these three components baked into it. And the reason I know this is because I did a lot of research when I was applying to programs. And then when I kind of went back to sort of cobble together the curriculum for DIY MFA. I did some more research on it, and so most programs will have some sort of workshop or craft class that is sort of the writing piece of the equation. And that's usually the dominant part of a traditional MFA program. A lot of programs then also require either that you be reading things on your own or that you take literature courses through the, you know, English lit department or even the creative writing department will offer um uh, reading, like literature courses. And then, of course, there's the community, which is what people usually think of off the top of their heads when they think of an MFA program kind of the hobnobbing with other writers and sitting around the table and talking about literature and books and poetry sure. and you know, the meeting of the minds. So that's where those three pieces came from. And then I started thinking about, like, okay, if we were going to recreate this outside of academia, what would it look like? And that's where DIY MFA. Went.
1: There's where that's where it was
2: born.
3: Yeah. Well why do you think
2: the MFA programs are so biased against genre?
3: That's a really good question. I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I think it's ridiculous. Like I, I don't quite understand it. <laughs> not that I, you know, and I have nothing against MFA programs, by the way, I think that they're absolutely phenomenal at serving a very specific and very small group of people. The problem is that there aren't any uh, other alternatives or there are very few other alternatives to it. And the fact that like the vast majority of writers are not writing literary fiction. So, um, but honestly, I really don't know. I mean, let's, if we look at it from a reasonable perspective, it's not like, like the genre genres where the money is, like, that's where people actually make money as writers, for the most part, genre is where, you know, most of the publishing industry is, that's what sells, you know, by and large, obviously, there are a few exceptions. But in general, that's really where it's at in terms of like, volume, both in terms of the number of books being written, and sort of, where people can make a career out of this. So I have no idea.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I mean, sometimes I've used some of those things as, as like they the, still the snobbish thing. It's kind of like, "Oh, you write you write what?" "Oh yeah, I don't read that stuff." And it's like, "Well, you're missing out on only, you know, 50 billion books freaking sold, dude." So I don't know why, you know, you, you don't want to try to get in, but it's like they want the it's like they kind of want the old man uh, story of motherhood or what, I don't know, whatever it is. To me, I kind of find that boring. But for the snobby kind of things, it's kind of like, yeah, but that's like real writing. But I'll tell you what, for anyone who has to write genre fiction and who has to write thrillers and suspense and whatever, um, I'd have to say that that's, that's pretty damn difficult. And I wouldn't look at Sir Arthur Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie and say, you're not a real writer because you don't write literary fiction and stuff like that. You know what I mean?
3: And, of course, the irony, of course, is that now yes. people it's, – it's become almost trendy in, like, the literary circles to look at the Arthur Conan Doyles or the Edgar Allan Poe's and being like, oh, well, that's those are classics. They're not genre right. now, and they're not literary. They're classics. So, it's kind of like, okay, if you're if you wrote genre, but now you're dead and you've been dead for a hundred years, now you're a classic. So I find it kind of hilarious. And of course, the the funniest part is in children's books, right? Like children's books, probably that's the niche that's changing, especially y a is probably the changing the fastest in the industry right now. So like anything that was written when I was a teenager is now, technically a classic. Which totally blows my mind. I'm like, wait, I read this when I was 15. How is this a classic? This is weird, but it's just sort of the way the industry is and how people think about it. So.
1: But but here's kind of and I want to kind it's of like get your opinion because, yeah, you know, and hey, when we die, we're going to be classic. But <laughs> um, the the one thing that I that, that I see coming out now, and, and I have a book on my pile that I'm going to read, and it's by. Um, Sophie Hannah, who's now writing Agatha Christie, because now you're seeing these older classic authors now coming out, and what they're doing is that they're bringing these guys back out. But it's not Agatha Christie writing. You know, it's not Tom Clancy writing. It's not, you know, Sorrel and Doral writing. It's somebody new writing their stories. Where do you fall in that of, um, is that a good thing, or is that just simply like a money grab and you kind of stay away from it?
3: Uh, honestly, I, I mean, I in general, the DIY MFA mantra is that in general we don't judge the literature in terms of like mm-hmm. is this something that people should write or shouldn't write, but more like is the story good, is it interesting, and as far as that goes, like honestly, I I kind of I I personally wouldn't want to do it. Like I if I as a writer, I don't think I'd want to take someone else's story because name it I want to like do whatever I want with it I don't want to be like right. basically ghostwriting for a dead guy so I I kind of like so from I guess a, a creative perspective I don't ever see myself doing it I do uh-huh. think it could be an interesting and worthy challenge however to try to write in an author like a Previous classic, you know, quote air quotes classic uh, style author style. Um, like I rec- I read some time ago this book Jane Slayer. It's like Jane Eyre, but it's like she's a vampire slayer. It was actually oh, really God. well done. It was it was hilarious. Yeah. It was is that so like Pride funny. and
1: Prejudice for zombies?
3: But this was actually before that whole Pride and Prejudice and zombies thing even like yeah. happened. And this like preceded oh. that. And it was actually really good. I remember reading it and like, you know, the classic line at the end of Jane Eyre, you know, spoiler alert, people that, you know, whatever. But that last chapter was yeah. like, and then reader, I buried him or I married him. Right. And that's where like she marries the Mr. Rochester or whatever. But in this book, it's like, and then reader, I buried him. And like, it's like, it's so perfect because it rhymes and it's the same lilt to the language, and it totally made sense with the story. It's not like she had to do, like, story acrobatics to make it work, um, because it turned out he was, like, uh, they had to bury him in order to, like, release the werewolf or vampire spirit from him or something. So, like, it totally worked, and it was hilarious. It was so funny, and I was like, you know, if you're going to rewrite a classic, that's that's how I'd want to do it, you know? So, anyway, my two cents. I gotcha
1: yeah hey, no, I like your two cents. You could put it a dime if you wanted to
3: <laughs> well,
2: I'm curious uh so what prompted you to start doing your own podcast um and sort of yeah essentially, you're on the other side of the uh mic this time.
3: I know it's a little weird. It's kind of fun, but like different, right? I'm usually the one who gets to ask the questions, and uh, so I'm, I know how, where the interview is going to go. And this time, I'm like, oh, this is a new ride. It's kind of fun. Um, I guess what prompted me to start, like, to be completely honest, I wanted an excuse to be able to reach out to my like favorite authors and talk to them. And I knew that if I just like sent an email and said, Hey, I'm this person you don't know. And can we have coffee? That would totally be weird. But if I emailed them and I said, Hey, I've got this awesome podcast and I want to have you on the show, then it would be like a reason to connect with people. And so that was sort of like my ulterior motive at the beginning. Like I just wanted to have these conversations and then it sort of became a thing. And like, we started getting even more awesome authors on it and now it's like, sort of spun out into its its own like little mm-hmm. universe but it was really mostly like the fact that I could you know a few weeks ago last week's episode we aired um, an interview with Delia Efron I'd never in my dreams would have imagined you know talking to Delia Efron of all people like hello she's amazing and like yeah. being able to geek out over shop around the corner versus you've got mail and like geek out over that stuff with her was amazing so it yeah that, that's why. Because I'm a total nerd. Well, I subscribe, and I, and I really a fan like it. Girl.
1: <laughs> hey, you're in a room full of nerds. Jeff and I are huge nerds. <laughs> totally. You know. Well, so of all the interviews you have
2: done, do you have a personal favorite, or is there a moment when you were like such a fan that it was practically impossible for you to do the interview?
3: Oh, God, I'm a fangirl all the time. And occasionally I'll have to do it before I even like, start the recording, so, you know, I do my little, like, pre-episode spiel, and I kind of prep the person and stuff, and usually, if I'm, like, really a fan of the author, I'll be like, okay, and now I need to take a a moment and have my fangirl moment, oh, my God, I'm talking to, and then you fill in the blank with the author's name, and usually that kind of loosens me up a little bit, and then they'll chuckle, and we'll kind of have this back and forth, and I'm like, okay, I'll I'll contain myself, and then we launch in and do the episode, so, yeah, that happens almost all the time, so... (laughs) Basically, now, I just happen to like maintain composure for the most part while I'm on the air.
1: Yeah, I mean you should. God, you should have heard Jeff the other time when we had like <laughs> Douglas Preston on. I didn't think he was going to get through it, but he did good. <laughs> he did good. So yeah. <laughs> now, where's your mic? Can I turn it off? <laughs> no, you can't. You're in the wrong city, dude. <laughs> the funny thing is, I yeah. can turn yours off. So the the thing That's here true. is, is that. Um, so you have – there's a lot of things that people are going to learn uh, when they read your book. And one of the things that I'm just going to pick out because it's that, you know, it breathe life. You say breathe, breathe life into your characters. So for someone who's kind of struggling and they're trying to figure out – because I always say whether you write a character that someone loves or someone hates, you've done your job. You never want to write a character that someone forgets so when you're breathing life in your character what exactly are you kind of meaning by that in the book that a writer is going to get out of
3: so it it's like what you said it's when a character who's compelling is a character who it doesn't necessarily matter if they're likable or not, but you have to sympathize with them. You have to care like the opposite of, you want the opposite of apathy, right? Like if the reader doesn't care what happens to the character, then the writer hasn't done their job. So really the way to do that is, I mean, it's this thing, it's in one of the chapters in the book and I've talked about it on the podcast. I call it the opposite is possible theory. And it's this idea that most characters fall on somewhere on a spectrum, where on one end of the spectrum, you have this sort of everyday character, the everyman, right? Ordinary Joe, as I call them, or Jane. And then on the other hand, you have like the larger than life superhero, amazing, you know, perfect, but not perfect character. And so the way to sort of make those characters interesting for your reader is to show like wherever your character falls on that spectrum, and there is a lot of there's there are a lot of shades of gray here. Like no character is truly an everyman character. Nobody's ever truly completely ordinary because there's no such thing as ordinary. Everyone has a little bit of quirkiness or weirdness to them. I know, because I'm weird. But um and at the same time, we all know like superheroes aren't really superheroes. Even Superman has his kryptonite, et cetera. So your character chances R doesn't fall exactly at one pole or the other, but rather somewhere in the middle and kind of leans toward one end of the spectrum or the other. And so the way to humanize them really is to show that they are it's possible for them to become the opposite of what they are. You don't actually have to make them the opposite. That would be basically like breaking character. Like if, you know, a John Wayne character started acting like totally the opposite of John Wayne or something, you know what I mean? Like it would be like totally opposite would not work. And your reader, that's when your reader would shut down and they just would stop caring altogether because it's off. But if you show the potential for that, that's where you kind of create that humanity. So as an example, um, Harry Potter is an example that I tend to reference a lot both in the book and when I teach because he's such a great example of a character who in some circumstances can be kind of an everyman or almost a nobody, right? Like he's the kid who lives in the cupboard under the stairs. I mean, that's about as nobody as you can get when you're starting the series. And then at the end, he's the kid who freaking saves, pardon my French, like saves the world from, you know, Voldemort and all the Death Eaters and whatever. So, um, like, but we always see like, even when he is living under the cupboard, under the stairs, he's, you know, we have that moment where he leans on the glass at the zoo, and we see that there's something different about him, something special. And like, it slowly builds where we eventually realize he's the the boy who lived on the flip side even when he is battling Voldemort we see moments of vulnerability in harry we see that moment where he takes snape's tears and puts them in the pensieve and how that affects him and that you know gives us that sort of pause of humanity before he goes off for that final battle with voldemort so it's really about showing the potential for your character to change throughout the story. And that's what makes your reader care because that's when they start seeing your reader as having sort of multi-dimensions and not just being some puppet character. Does that make sense?
1: It does. That, that does. I go, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: I got it. One, one of the things that uh, John and I argue about a lot on this show is series. <laughs> and I knew this
1: was coming.
2: <laughs> you knew I was going to ask. So of since we're talking about character, how do you feel about series characters?
3: Um, so there's sort of two ways that characters can play out in a series, and it depends on what kind of series you're writing, right? If you're writing a mystery that's a, a series, what I would call an episodic series, so like mysteries where you have – the same sleuth who comes back and solves a mystery. I mean, think of like Murder She Wrote and Angela Lansbury. I mean, it almost becomes formulaic after a while, like every town she rolls into someone dies. You would think people would have figured that out at some point and been like, "Bar the windows, crazy woman is coming." Anyway, but um so that's like episodic series. And in that scenario, it's like the character needs to have a certain level of constancy and then what changes More is the world around the character. And obviously you have to have some interest and growth or else readers or viewers will check out, but there has to be some level of stability. And especially if the series involves your character moving around, like if it's thrillers or something where the characters, you know, going to different countries in the world and the universe of the story is shifting, having that constancy of the character is really important. Um, Obviously, you still want to show some growth, but it's not like it doesn't have quite as much of that like neat little arc that you would see in, say, a trilogy or like the seven Harry Potter books. The seven Harry Potter books are amazingly well plotted as a series, by the way. Do you guys realize that it is a trilogy of trilogies?
1: What, what do you mean by yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, so, look, this is the one thing this, the one thing that I've kind of noticed with the books. And I've been very, very critical. I have nothing to back this up, but I have no problem with saying it. I think the first three books were, I think the first three books were, were different than the than the remaining four. And I and I have a and, and I and I believe that there was some help with those remaining four because they were written in a totally different style than the first three. I don't think that they well, were written by one person. That's just my well, and again that is my theory only.
3: The As far as, like, who wrote them, I don't have any evidence or knowledge, so I can't speak right. to that aspect. But speaking just structurally. I can speak if you,
1: to the fact of how it was constructed and how it was much different. From Goblet of Fire on was much different than Sorcerer's Stone to Azkaban, in my opinion.
3: Well, if you look at the way the books are structured, so, like, this ties into the whole trilogy of trilogies thing. So really what you have is the first three books are a unit, and the last three books are a unit. The the middle book, Goblet of Fire, is sort of the pivot, and it in and of itself is structured more like three-thirds that are smushed together as opposed mm-hmm. to your traditional three-act structure where you have the short act one, the larger act two, and then the short act three at the end. If you look at the structure of that particular book, it's very different from the other books where you have in Goblet of Fire, a really large chunk of the book is dedicated at the beginning to – the Quidditch Cup. And then we have a slightly longer chunk in the middle, but not as long as the usual Harry Potter Act 2s that tend to be much larger, um, tend to encompass much more of the book percentage-wise. So it's a shorter Act 2 that's this Triwizard Cup or whatever tournament. And then we have a really long Act 3. I mean, the part where Harry ends up facing off with Voldemort is really sizable in that book, much more so than the other books and sort of kind of breaks the format in terms of like the way the other books had dealt with. And I think the reason for this is because that's the first book where Voldemort actually manifests himself as a physical being. He doesn't actually appear in the first three books. And you need to have this sort of almost trilogy-esque, like grander middle book to have that transformation. And then, of course, the story, I mean, I think the last three books are completely different from the first three. I mean, they're even in a different age group. That's the book that goes from middle grade to YA, in my opinion. And that's, I think, a very conscious decision because the last, like, you couldn't sell the darkness of the last three books. I mean, middle grade can be dark. It can't be that dark. There's no way those books would have worked, The you know, books five, six, and seven as strictly middle grade. They had to be place this YA so I think it's interesting the way uh, it works
1: yeah no now the one thing and you know uh, when you're talking with people about writing and you're talking and let's just say we're talking about a seven book series and we'll use Harry Potter for instance when you're writing a seven book series though and you start seeing that there are some massive plot holes within it but people don't seem to care they just glaze over them as in the fact of he gets this map in book three, but no one to that point ever knew that Peter Pettigrew was living with Ron for the first two years in his bed and Scabbers was running around and you know all those kinds of things. Or, or in book three where she gets the time travel thing, and that's so she can't uh, miss class. You, know, you don't use it for anything else but missing class. So there's a lot of major plot holes, but people don't seem to care Why do you think that is?
3: I think people are willing to gloss over those blips in the plot if the characters are compelling enough and the world is compelling enough. So I think I agree. I think they're definitely – things in the Harry Potter books where they are like, their weak points. Like any book has a weak point. Um, One of my pet peeves with those books, much as I love Harry Potter, by the way, but one of my pet peeves is that she uses a whole heck of a lot of adverbs, especially in dialogue. And like, it (laughs) drives me nuts. And I mean, I remember one time pulling out one of the books to a random page and counted the number of adverbs on that page. It was something like six or seven. And it was kind of insane. I was like, this is this weird, but You forgive that as a reader. You forgive that if you love the characters enough. Because, you know, when I was reading book three of Harry Potter and he got the map, I was so excited to see what he was going to do with that map that I didn't really stop to worry about whether Peter Pettigrew had been around and all of that stuff. Like, for me, it was the sort of being so committed to the characters that we kind of gloss over some of those finer details. I think the moment a writer knows that they've lost the reader is the moment the reader starts noticing those gaps because that's when they've sort of stepped out of the story enough and they're not completely engaged with the characters. I think a huge selling point for the Harry Potter books are the world. I mean the fact that they that world is so rich that it is now a theme park that is a sign yeah. of a really well crafted world so readers yeah. are willing to kind of let certain things go if the world comes to life if they feel like they're there so yeah, I, I often think of writing as like you're making a pact with your reader. You're making a promise. You're striking a deal as writer and reader. And the writer side of the deal is I'm going to give you a really good story and characters you're going to care about. And the writer side of the deal is – or the reader side is I'm going to go along for the ride. And the minute the writer doesn't start doing what they're supposed to do, that's when the reader kind of says, all right, I'm done, and they hop off the train basically.
1: Well, uh, Gabriella, we, we've come here to, to the halfway point, and we want to know, do you, can you stick around for the, for the last segment, or do you, you got to go?
3: Oh, I'm all good.
1: Totally up to you. Okay, I am, so I'm let's all a,
3: good and caffeinated and so everything. So let's take a
1: quick break, then. So let's take a quick break, and then we will come back and, you know, and just, just kind of talk about writing, talk about books in general, and, you know, just have some fun. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this. Here we go. That's right, Jeff. We are back, and that is Sabotage, Edge of I know you hate the music, but that's just tough. That's a cool song, And you song, like my guitar man. solo? That is, I know. Well, unfortunately, the guy who did that guitar solo, his name is Chris Olivia, and he's dead. But his brother, John Olivia, I was just, I'm just going to do a real quick spoiler over here. His brother, John Olivia, who's the singer for that group, he's the one who started Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So... If you ever know Trans-Siberian Orchestra, that's John Olivia, and he's the singer for Sabotage, and his brother was Chris Olivia, who was a fabulous guitar player who died in a car crash much too young, about 10 years ago, and um, that's why he started his group, John Olivia, and Pain, which was for his brother, and they did Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So, just a little, you know. And whether you cared about it or not, you freaking found out anyway. <laughs> well, there you go. So, you know, so Gabriella, we had a great little conversation going here off the break, so let's kind of talk about that, and um, again, the, 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 the one thing that I've always talked about and I like to talk about is reading in general. And while I think that there's some massive holes in Harry Potter, I think it's great that kids were reading it, because um, I think getting kids to read is important. The one thing that I don't agree with is some of these reading structures um, and my wife totally disagrees with me pretty much But I don't think that you should force kids to have to read the Shakespeare's or the, or the classic ones You know, Frankenstein's a very slow book Dracula's a very slow book And if you're forcing kids to read it You hear a lot of people, they leave high school, college they are like, I'm never going to read another book again Because I had to read all these crappy ones I think you should let them read what they want because I think reading in general is a good thing. And I think that if they, you should let them know that other things are there, but let them find it and then have classes specifically for that if they want to take it. But I don't think that they should be forced to take it. What are your thoughts?
3: So as I sort of touched on in the break, I, I kind of have two Sides to this so on one hand I totally understand that resistance and I will sort of reveal something I'm not supposed to really say this openly because it's not like on brand I'm you know doing air quotes with my fingers here but the truth is I'm not a huge reader of literary fiction I'm sorry I I just can't I that's okay but I feel really dumb when I'm a reader at all Like when I read some books that are literary or so-called literary, you know, like the books that are, you know, the critical darlings and stuff, I feel dumb when I read them. Like I read it and I'm like, I don't get it. What's wrong with me? And then, of course, like or like I pick up literary magazines. I remember when I first started writing like in earnest back before the MFA. I had this idea that I was going to write and submit to literary magazines. And so obviously I did what you're supposed to do. I picked up a couple of copies of different literary magazines, you know, the usual suspects like the Tin houses and McSweeney's and whatever's of the world plowshares and yada yadas. And I like remember reading some of those stories and being like, I don't understand what's going on. Like, I don't get it. Where's the punchline? I felt like it was flying over my head. And so for a while I thought it was like my lack of brain cells that just prevented me from being part of the secret club of people who understand that kind of work. And then I realized that sort of, I came to a conclusion that either a, I was never going to be part of that club. And honestly, I didn't care because I found the work kind of boring to read and b) that like, maybe there wasn't really a secret club. Maybe everyone doesn't get it. And they just say, they write these things that nobody gets because it's cool. So I, I sort of decided to just like live and let live with literary fiction. But I I do resonate with that resistance, right, that feeling of, like, being forced to read, kind of reading like homework and feeling, remembering the days when I used to be forced to read things that I didn't like to read. On the other hand, I do firmly believe that everyone should read Shakespeare at some point, but they should read Shakespeare with someone showing them how to read Shakespeare. They should also read Chaucer, by the way. Exactly. Holy cow. Catullus I can you know I can swear in Latin right because I studied Catullus and I read Catullus in Latin it was like one of those points of pride when I was in high school I can swear in Latin but um I think it's really important for young people especially to realize that like Shakespeare he was a rock star in his days and like some of his books are really kind of weird and raunchy and like, or his plays rather like Romeo and Juliet. He, it's like, he started writing that play thinking I'm writing a comedy. And then all of a sudden, halfway through scene one, act three, he accidentally kills off his most interesting character. And he's like, oops, all right, now it's a tragedy. I'm going to kill everyone off. Like, it's literally like the play is structured like that. And it's the most hilarious thing that people, you know, aren't taught to read it, kind of recognizing that sometimes these so-called classic writers don't really know what they're doing or they mess up and that's okay. So it's kind of the same thing with Chaucer too. You know, Chaucer was kind of pervy, right? Like his books, like the Canterbury Tales, (laughs) like, Oh boy. Like it's, it's really, yeah. So it's kind of hilarious. Like when I read those books, I had some great English teachers in, um, in high school and in college, especially in high school, who were kind of like, just, we're going to tell it like it is. And I learned to read kind of with that eye of like, oh yeah, Shakespeare was a rock star. That's cool. And so I think you kind of need to, it's not the reading that is the problem. It's the way people are introduced to the literature. That's the problem.
2: I can agree with that 100% cuz my English teacher in high school ruined ruined books for me. I can 100% say that and I've gone back years later and read the books and loved them. To Kill a Mockingbird good example. Mm-hmm. How do you ruin to Kill a Mockingbird? She was able to do it. Oh man. She even ruined Ray that, Bradbury.
3: That, that that takes skill. Or rather, like the anti-skill as a teacher. Like you have to be making a like conscious decision here to ruin Ray Bradbury for a high schooler. Anyway.
2: Yeah, oh, man, and yeah, don't get me started on Shakespeare. I love Shakespeare now, but boy, back then I, I wanted to uh, dig him up and kill him again. But <laughs> but uh, a question? A question back to your book, because one of the things I love about um, the opening of your book is your manifesto, your, mind, your mindfulness manifesto. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that.
3: Sure. So the mindfulness manifesto, and basically the first chapter of the book where I talk about iteration, and like a lot of what's in the book, I drew from a lot of different sources. The reason for this in part is because I tend to be obsessed and I like to geek out over a lot of really – random things like I'm obsessed with theme parks and I love uh, all things relating to design and I used to be a toy designer in the past in a past life and I love reading about tech startup culture and so anyway all these sort of diverse interests were sort of an excuse to like learn cool stuff that I wanted to learn and then trying to find ways to sneak them into the book and the mindfulness stuff came from learning a lot about sort of that crossover that slice between psychology and like meditation and sort of that way that people can use mindfulness to be aware of where their brain is going and where their thoughts are going, and then kind of train themselves sort of condition themselves to redirect those thoughts. And it's something that you see happening in like the psychology sphere. There's a lot of research and stuff going on in terms of like cognitive behavioral uh, therapy and theories and stuff like that. So anyway, I used to study psych also back in the day. So I was really interested, like, these were all sort of things that I've been thinking about. And I kind of like to Read up on and learn about like the iteration stuff all came from reading up on tech startup cultures and realizing that, like, oh, the way a tech company launches a new app is kind of the way a writer can launch their book. You just kind of change things up and like sort of applying the same conceptual framework to the way you would perfect your writing process, as it were. So, the mindfulness manifesto part. Is really about understanding the mindsets that are getting in your way as a writer and then finding ways to get around them and the truth is it's it's all about like one of the main tenets in DIY MFA is this concept of honoring your reality and like I don't believe in bsing writers. I think like you need to be real. so the truth is like writing is hard, life is hard, stuff happens but So this myth of like, oh, you might be able to reframe your mindset with some magic manifesto and then poof, you'll never have another problem again. That's total, like, that's not going to happen. But the goal is to bounce back faster each time. So if every time you learn to sort of reframe your mindset or reboot your brain, as it were, it takes a little less time for you to do that. That's all time that can then go to, working on your writing or reading a good book or working on a blog or your author platform or whatever. So that's really what where sort of the mindfulness manifesto came from. I mean, what it actually is, I cannot remember off the top of my head. I know that um, the whole idea of creative blocks not existing, I mean, there's nothing out there stopping you from writing. No, unless someone is physically holding your hands away from the keyboard, there is nothing keeping you from writing. So when people say, oh, I'm blocked, no, you're not. Just stop whining, sit down, and do the work. Um, not to be mean, right. but that's just reality. You know, and some of the they other talk about things failure with guilt as well. Yeah, so that that's sort of that mindfulness and that meditation stuff. You know, this idea. So in like um in the psychology world, they talk about the difference between pain and suffering. So pain is like the objective bad thing that is happening. So and suffering is kind of the Angst and all the yuckiness that we as human beings pile on top of that pain. So, the classic example I always give is I live in New York City and so I take the subway a lot. And inevitably, whenever I am late for a meeting,
1: I'm sorry that's for the your time, that i on that one.
3: <laughs> I know, right? And I, whenever <laughs> I'm late, I'm, th- that's exactly the time when the subway will stop underground between two stops and we're stuck there for 15 minutes so the pain is being stuck in the subway underground for 15 minutes the suffering is all of the checking my watch every 10 seconds and the why isn't the train moving and all of that like anxiety that i then pile on top of the fact that the train is just sitting there doing all of that is not going to make the train move it's completely out of my control
1: let me guess you study buddhism don't you
3: I don't, but it's sort of t- – I mean, it's very much all coming from that It very much place is
1: because like I'm going to meditate tonight, right? We get off the show. I go out and I meditate every night, um, and I think it's a wonderful – mindfulness is a great thing, and, and I do agree. Yeah, there's no such thing as really there, – there is blocking at a point, but you have to be – you can always find a way out of it. And sometimes that's where your best ideas come from. When you write yourself into a corner and you have to write yourself out, you're like, damn, I never would have thought of that.
3: And the key, I mean, the place where like the psychology kind of ties in is that if you're meditating and you're sort of accepting like the sort of radical acceptance concept of like, okay, I'm going to accept that I'm on the subway and I'm stuck here. That's sort of where that ends. The psychology is like training yourself to recognize, oh, there's my brain again, getting into that angst space. Oh my gosh, I am ratcheting up my anxiety and then finding a way to behaviorally channel that energy into something else. Um, And so, and in the book, I talk about some techniques. I use an angst jar where I put little notes to myself about all the stuff that I am annoyed by. And then I just like put it in there as a safe space to hold it so that I can let it go. Um, And like techniques like that, you have to sort of trick yourself sometimes to get out of your own way as a writer.
1: Now, I, what's the best way for someone who's listening, and not only do they get a copy of your book, but what about just being involved in, in the community and, and what you've been building and, and how they can kind of get um, you know, not just more information, but how they can kind of you know, become more engaged with, the, with what you're doing in the process? What's the best thing for them to do?
3: Well, so basically, how do they get to be a word nerd? Word nerds are what yeah. I call my tribe and my people. Um, so yeah. you can join the Word Nerd tribe by heading over to DIYMFA.com. Um, and first of all, there's a ton of resources on the website that are there. Feel free to poke around, look at everything. Um, we have the podcast. We have people writing articles a few times a week. But um, the uh, the way to really get part of the community is – to sign up for the newsletter list. And when you sign up, you'll get a starter kit. But then you'll also get an invite to our private Facebook group. And there we're about 1,100 strong in the group at this point. And it's a really supportive group so far. We haven't had any, like, crazies infiltrate. I'm almost, like, hesitant to tell people about it because, you know, we we're kind of in this oh, wonderful space. Oh, I'm signing state. up, and I'm going to be so your first beautiful. crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm signing up. i want going to be the first crazy. <laughs> But no, but seriously, it's like, you know, some of these Facebook groups, especially like when people are sort of cross promoting in Facebook groups, it becomes really salesy and like spammy. But this is not that. And it's I'm kind of like, oh, my gosh, it's so great. And I don't want to break it. But um, but it's a really supportive group. And it, people will talk to each other, share their wins and, you know. We've had people connect in the group and then go on to, like, become critique partners or whatever. My general feeling is I don't want to go near the workshop or critique universe with a 10-foot pole. So if people want to connect with each other and then kind of take it from there on their own, yay. (laughs) Because my thing is – Just to
1: clarify, and this is good for any author who's writing any style of genre book, correct? Correct.
3: Absolutely. And I mean if you're writing literary, we have some people who write literary, we have some poets in there too. So it's pretty we are genre and category agnostic. We even have some nonfiction writers. So um, So yeah. you are an
1: inclusive, not an exclusive club.
3: Exactly. I gotcha. So it is beautiful. And I mean, basically, if you if you claim your status as the word nerd, then you are a word nerd. It's about the self empowerment.
1: Yeah. See, and then you can go on there with other people that are word nerds, and you shouldn't feel bad by being one.
3: Exactly.
1: Yeah. See. So see, um, you found your home, Jeff. You found your home, oh. dude. I told you you would.
2: <laughs> one of the things that I've discovered um, trying to write over the years, is they say, oh, we want something new. When you go to conferences and talk to agents, they say, well, we want to see something new. And then if you write something new, they say, well, I don't know how to sell this. This is, um, you know, this is sort of this is new. Like, well, isn't that what you want? (laughs) So, uh, It's a little confusing, I guess. Could you talk a bit about the confusion of the industry in general?
3: Yeah, so I've, I I know that, like, sorry, I think I just banged my mic. I hope that didn't mess up the sound. That's all right. I, someone I just guess, beat
1: the horn outside my window, so that's
3: okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my thought is what I would say to writers who are worrying about the industry and sort of the finickiness of it, right, the the fickleness mm-hmm. of it, is right. I wouldn't, don't think about the industry when you're choosing what to write about. Think about the industry when you need to start like selling it and when you need to actually go out and and do it. So like, I think as far as the creative process goes, writing something because you think this is what the industry wants, unless it's something you would have written anyway, even if the industry didn't want it, that's not a project to work on. That's, That's something like that's that's just going to be an exercise in futility. Um, But you want to be aware of things so that you can ask the right questions when you get there. And my general feeling, I mean, I don't know, I've been extraordinarily lucky in terms of like my publishing experiences, because I I basically like it it wasn't I don't want to sound horrible, but it, it wasn't horrendous to get to find a publisher and get an agent like it kind of happened for me just sort of naturally but I think part of that was because I was asking the right questions and I was meeting people and just kind of being in the the network for enough time the way I explain it to my students is it's not that you know someone once said that like success is about being in the right time at the right, like in the right place at the right time. But the problem with that is that you never know where the right place is and when that right time will be. So the way to game that system is to be there all the time, to like just find ways to always be out there. And eventually, if you're out there enough, the right time will coincide with where you are. So what I mean by that is like, there, were, there was a span of like two or three years where I literally did not say no to a single networking or conference opportunity. I went to everything I could. If I could swing it and I could afford it or I could get a press pass to it or I could get an invite to it, I would go. And it was painful because I'm a diehard introvert. It probably doesn't sound like this on the air because I'm very chatty. I'm chatty because I'm nervous. I'm really introverted. But because of that, I think eventually because I was out there enough, eventually I was there at the right time. So as far as like the finickiness of the industry, if, you, if we try to like figure out what the industry wants, that's like trying to mind read like a monkey or something. Like it's just impossible. There's no way to do it. But if we just kind of forge those connect work connections with actual humans, like the industry is hard to figure out, but the individual people... That's a whole different story. Like, I knew that my agent was exactly the kind of agent who would want, and that he, this was exactly the kind of book he would want to represent. So that's why I went to him. Like, so, but I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't been making those connections and having conversations and having drinks and sort of being on podcasts or networking at conferences or whatever. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. well, I, and yeah. And I tell you what, Gabriela, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a fascinating conversation. Time has flown by. I um, want to remind everybody that that website is DIYMFA.com, DIYMFA.com for more information. So we want to, again, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute joy to talk with you. Uh, wish you nothing but the best. You know, any time that you got something new that you may want to come on and discuss, you know, we're here. We're not going anywhere. So it'd be great to have you back on.
3: Thank you so much. It was so much fun being here.
1: And don't be oh, nervous so with much. us. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff only bites if he's close to you. That's so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <not> supposed to <laughs> All my thing. long distance, but yeah, yeah. All right. So um, let's just what are we gonna do? Let's just cut it right now, and we'll tell everybody that we'll see you next week because you know who's on next week. Karen Slaughter. Karen Slaughter. That's right. Be Karen Slaughter yeah. we got coming on next week. So it's going to be great to talk to her. So until next week, everybody, it's always a pleasure. Jeff, you have a good one. We'll see you later. You too. Bye-bye.